movie, Nibble, is a movie called Terror in the Tiny Town. It's a western with an all-midget cast. Oh, great. What do we do? Show it on a pillowcase? With selected tall subjects. I'm serious. It's a real movie. You guys think. Who wants to see a shrimp cowboy? Abby who? Abby normal. Can your heart stand the shocking facts? Broadcasting from the backwoods of Fayette County, Pennsylvania, and promoting better living through bad movies, Clockwork Cardiac Productions presents Abnormal State Theater. I must. And now we present the theater curator and host of these broadcasts, Dr. R.D. Gearhart. Hello, one and all, and welcome to episode number three of Abnormal State Theater. The podcast where we examine the therapeutic value of bizarre and obscure cinema as a cure for the common movie. I'm your host, Dr. R.D. Gearhart, and before anything else, I want to extend an apology to any listeners who were expecting an episode for August of 2015. As it does from time to time, real life got in the way, and I tried to assemble an experimental format for the August episode that pretty much blew up in my face. I may return to that experiment at some point, but I'm tabling it for the moment. And my hope is to get this episode out around mid-August, and then sometime, or excuse me, not mid-August, but mid-September, and sometime in October and November, in addition to the episode for that particular month, I'd also release a bonus episode. That way, this podcast will have finally found its rhythm. But time will tell. A bunch of stuff happened in the entertainment world since the last episode. I can only hope to hit the highlights. Of course, in July we saw the annual gathering of the geeks known as San Diego Comic-Con. Far too much news to get into here, and most of it's old news by now. But some of the biggest buzz was over the upcoming Batman vs. Superman movie and Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens. I'll be honest, I'm not huge into comic book films. I've enjoyed some of them. Uh, The Dark Knight trilogy was excellent. I think Christopher Nolan did a great job with that. I loved Guardians of the Galaxy, but I could never really get too worked up over the minutiae of the different cinematic universes. Although I do like the concept of a cinematic universe in and of itself, as opposed to the endless cycles of sequels, prequels, and reboots we've been suffering from. I am, however, very excited over the new Star Wars films. I even went out and uh, bought a few of the new toys. I have one of the new design Stormtroopers in the 6-inch form, the Black Series figures, that is, version, and it's right next to my 6-inch Stormtrooper from the original trilogy, you know, and um, they're about the right scale, plus a new X-Wing and a new TIE Fighter. Anyway, I think J.J. Abrams will give us a really good return to form and finally get the bad taste of the prequels out of our mouths. I don't hate the prequels as much as some do, but they really could have been done a whole lot better. And you could really tell that um, a lot of the plot problems and characterization problems 
were handled basically by throwing special effects at it all, and um, as pretty as it was to look at, it really didn't work. On a more macabre note, there was a report coming out of Germany in July that the tomb of Friedrich Wilhelm Murnau, one of the stalwarts of the German Expressionist movement and director of early classics such as Nosferatu, A Symphony of Horror, and Sunrise, was broken into. The vandals decapitated the embalmed body and took just the head. There was some paraphernalia left behind in the mausoleum that indicates that this may have been the work of members of a satanic cult who frequently visited the tomb. Goth kids, what are you going to do with them? I really find this kind of disrespect for the dead appalling. It's just one more reason why I want to be cremated and my ashes scattered up in the mountains when I, I shuffle off this mortal coil. Hollywood also said goodbye to a number of its veterans over the past several months. Uh, Omar Sharif passed away at the age of 83 on July the 10th due to a heart attack. He's best known for his roles in Dr. Zhivago and Lawrence of Arabia, but also, interestingly enough, he was a legend in the world of Contract Bridge. At one time, he was one of the top 50 players in the world and was a regular at many of Europe's most celebrated casinos. On July 31st, we lost the pro wrestling great and cult movie actor Rowdy Roddy Piper, who died in his sleep at the age of 61 due to cardiac arrest. Now, Roddy Piper played a heel, or a bad guy, during his wrestling career for the most part, but by all accounts in real life, he was a really stand-up guy. Hulk Hogan, one of uh, Roddy Piper's biggest foes in the ring, called him his best friend. Uh, he played in a number of movies that are now considered to be cult classics. Uh, the most, two, the two most notable, that is, would be Hell Comes to Frogtown and They Live. In August, Yvonne Craig, the original Batgirl, passed away on the 17th at the age of 78 from breast cancer. She was another person highly spoken of in the showbiz community, and was also known for portraying the green-skinned Orion slave girl Marta in the original Star Trek episode, Whom Gods Destroy. On the 30th of August, uh, the biggest shocker of these, not, no pun intended, was when Wes Craven died from brain cancer at the age of 76. Now, there's a lot of things one could say about Wes Craven and his work, but I'll be honest, the first thing that hit my mind when one of my buddies texted me the news about him was, I had no idea that Wes Craven was that old. And most recently, at the time of this recording anyway, on September the 1st, actor Dean Jones passed away at the age of 84 from Parkinson's disease. He's best known for the movies The Love Bug and Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo, where he was the human companion, you may as well say, of a sentient Volkswagen Beetle that drove its way into the hearts of many young kids over the years. I know I used to love those movies as a kid. Some of you might remember the old punch buggy gag if you saw a beetle out on the road, but for the longest time, I refer to all Volkswagen Beetles as Herbies. Those were good times. And that's the thing, it's it, one of the bad things about getting older is watching your childhood die off piece by piece like this. Ah. <sighs>
fun. Who's for Chinese? And with that, we'll be getting into the movie for this month after this brief message. Hi, fellas. Roy Rogers! Hey, that's a pretty tricky hat, isn't it? Partners, how would you like to surprise your pals like that? Well, you can with my new Roy Rogers quick shooter hat. It's by ideal. And here's how the quick shooter hat works. Just press this secret button right here, and a replica of an authentic Western pistol pops out and fires. It's your secret weapon, even when they think you're unarmed. So get Ideal's new Roy Rogers quick shooter hat at your favorite store today, and you'll always be ready for anything. Ask for Ideal's new Roy Rogers quick shooter hat. One genre of film I've never gotten into was the old singing cowboy B-Western. My parents and grandparents used to speak in glowing terms of such heroes as Roy Rogers, Gene Autry, and so on and so forth. Even John Wayne got his start in westerns as a singing cowboy, although I'm pretty sure the Duke songs were dubbed in. I just never developed a desire to watch them because out of all the film genres I've encountered, it has to be one of the most predictable and formulaic ones, uh, although there are some other genres that people could say that about that I do like. But really, in these westerns, the plots are pretty much interchangeable, the heroes and villains, little more than cardboard cutouts, and the actual songs are just... <laughs> now, I do like westerns, just not that type. My favorite westerns range from the Duke's later work. I'm always down for a showing of true grit. I mean to kill you in one minute, Ned, or see you hanged in Fort Smith at Judge Parker's convenience. Which will it be? Or any of his work with Howard Hawks, uh, Rio Bravo, Rio Lobo, El Dorado, uh, which are all pretty much the same movie, but uh, just different enough to be interesting. And also the spaghetti westerns of Sergio Leone and his brethren, featuring folks such as Clint Eastwood, Lee Van Cleef, and Franco Nero. <laughs> But what do I find myself reviewing this month but a B-Western with a singing cowboy? Why am I subjecting myself to this? Because this one, The Terror of Tiny Town from 1938, directed by Sam Newfield, features something no other Western does. Midgets. Come here, I'm gonna eat you! I'm bigger than you, I'm higher in the food chain! Get in my belly! Come on! You're lucky, wee man! Ah. Or little people, or the vertically challenged, or whatever the correct political vocabulary is nowadays. They're referred to in the movie credits as Jed Buell's midgets, and we'll get to why in just a moment. 
But since that's what the movie calls them, for convenience's sake, I'll be using the terminology midgets. My apologies if that offends anyone's sensibilities. The Terror of Tiny Town was the brainchild of one Mr. Jed Fuel, who, according to the Medved brothers in the book The Golden Turkey Awards, got the idea after one of his employees joked that, if this economy drive keeps on, we'll be using midgets for actors. Now, in context, that joke makes perfect sense. America was still in the grip of the Great Depression. But the remark switched on a light bulb in Jed Buell's head. And he got cracking on making this joke a reality. This wasn't even Buell's first exploitation film. A year before this, he produced a western called Harlem on the Prairie. And that's all I'm saying about it. Are we awake? We are not sure. Are we black? Yes, we are. Then we're awake. But we're very puzzled. Anyway, the first thing he did was go, for lack of a better term, trolling for midgets. He ran ads in newspapers nationwide with the enticing tagline of, and it pains me to say this, big salaries for little people. <laughs> he also contacted talent agencies and broadcast ads on the radio and ultimately gathered a cast of about 60 actors averaging 3 feet 8 inches in height some of which would go on to also play munchkins in The Wizard of Oz a year later, because of course they would. We the lead actors for the film were Billy Curtis as Buck Lawson, the hero, Yvonne Moray as Nancy Preston, the female lead, and Little Billy Rhodes as the villain Bat Haynes. Now, the credits don't even give any names, they just list the characters as the hero, the girl, the villain, etc. For some reason, the villain's girlfriend is listed as the vampire, although she's really just a saloon girl with uh, no blood-drinking tendencies. I think it's more the archaic term of vamp. The budget on the film was just over $100,000. Adjusting roughly for inflation, that would be about $1.6 million today. So, let's step back a moment and think about this, folks. Jed Buell bet over a million and a half of today's dollars that a still depressed America would want to see a Western with an all-midget cast. And guess what? By all accounts, he won that bet. What does this say about the American viewing public in the late 1930s? All I'm going to venture to say is that they must have really liked their singing cowboys. You've got to remember that these are just simple farmers. These are people of the land. The common clay of the New West. You know. Morons. <laughs> According to the Medveds, the film made enough of a profit for Jed Buell to plan a second midget movie this time starring them as lumberjacks with a character actor of normal height playing the mythical Paul Bunyan. I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I sleep all night. I work all day. He's a lumberjack he's okay. He sleeps all night and he works all day. But it never materialized. 
And while the movie itself was a modest box office success, it faded into obscurity by and large, except for connoisseurs of bizarre B-movies like myself. The only time I've ever seen or heard a reference to it outside of the books and websites that specialize in bad movies is an episode of M.A.S.H. where Corporal Klinger mentions that he could get the movie as part of an attempt to raise the camp's morale, which we heard at the opening of the show, although he gets the name slightly wrong. Of course, Colonel Potter gave it the thumbs down. But the look my family gave me when I perked up at the reference and said, Hey, I've seen that movie, was priceless. Isn't that special? It's been a while since I've watched it, so this is a bit of a refresher for me. It's probably not a good sign that I don't remember too much about it. Now, The Terror of Tiny Town doesn't have a trailer per se, but it does have a little intro piece because, well, this is the sort of thing you don't want to unleash on an audience without a little forewarning. So I'll play that pre-credit sequence as I descend to the screening chamber. Ladies and gentlemen and children of all ages, we're going to present for your approval a novelty picture with an all-midget cast, the first of its kind ever to be produced. I'm told that it has everything. That is, everything that a Western should have. It's a soul-stirring drama, a searing saga of the sagebrush, and it's called The Terror of Tiny Town. But I must caution you not to take it too seriously. Uh, this picture begins... Hey, mister. Come down here. I want to talk to you. Uh, pardon me. Excuse me. There's a slight correction. You mean it is serious? Sure it's serious. I'm the hero. After this picture's out, I'll be the biggest cowboy star in Hollywood. Wait a minute. A star in Hollywood. Who are you? Well, who are you? I'm the villain. Who did that? Oh, oh, oh. The applause is okay. But who laughed? I'm the toughest hombre that ever threw lead. And I ain't afraid of the biggest one of you. I'm the terror of Tiny Town. And that's the star part. That's what you think. Yeah, that's just what I think. Wait a minute, man, man, wait a minute. We'll see. Let's go through the picture. That's a swell idea. Let's go through with the picture. Terminating program. And I'm back after having taken a little refresher on the terror of Tiny Town. 
and sadly it was not refreshing at all. I'm coming out against this movie right out of the gate, folks, and I'll tell you why. I don't have any problem with the concept of the film in and of itself. The idea of an all-midget western doesn't offend or bother me. In the hands of a filmmaker with enough imagination, it could be an intriguing premise, and it could be quite hilarious as well. Unfortunately, Jed Buell, Sam Newfield, and, and his crew simply weren't creative with it at all. This movie essentially is a novelty item. Now, as anyone who's ever visited Spencer's Gifts or a Hot Topic store knows, typically a novelty item is something you buy on impulse, at least partially because the act of owning it will convince you that something that bizarre actually exists, such as a remote-controlled electronic fart machine, or a singing fish on a plaque. The problem with novelty items is that once you've bought them and played around with them for a little bit, the novelty wears off in a hurry. But you've paid your money and taken your choice at that point. The same thing happens with this movie. The idea behind it is so mishandled it's not even funny. They don't bury the lead here at all. There's no big reveal that nobody in the town is above a certain height. The title and the prologue trumpet this fact from the housetop, so after about five minutes of watching the film, the average viewer is going to be like, okay, so everybody in town's a midget. What else you got? The sad answer is nothing. The movie itself plays out as a typical, if actually better plotted than average, Formula B Western. And let's actually talk about the plot for a moment or two here. Now, I'm not even going to use the character names because, again, it, it's all so cardboard and one-dimensional that I can just get by with the titles that are given at the beginning credits. Essentially, the bad guy instigates a range war between two ranchers, hoping to move in and take over the land after they've destroyed one another. I jumped a bunch of rustlers at work. Rustlers? And they left in such a hurry they forgot their branding iron. Keeper Pete. Tex Preston. That's the way I read it. Why, that low-down coyote. I fought Tex Preston to a standstill 15 years ago, and it looks like he ain't learned his lesson. That branding iron fixed things with the Lawson outfit. Now we'll throw a scare at Tex Preston. Someone killing my stuff? It looks that way. There was a calf hanging around. Looked like he was related to her but he carried Pop Lawson's brand. Well, a low-down coyote. Killing my cows so he can steal my calves. Why, I fought Pop Lawson to a standstill 15 years ago. You think he'd know better than the monkey with a buzzsaw. Meanwhile, the one rancher's son, the de facto hero of the movie, falls in love with the other rancher's niece. Don't you ever think of settling down? Not until I stop this feud between our families. I hope you can, Buck, soon. Oh, let's forget all this trouble and just go on with our picnic. So, if you think about it, this movie is a musical western Romeo and Juliet with midgets. That is a set of words I never thought I'd string together in that particular order. The sheriff of the town is powerless to do anything because the bad guy knows that the lawman is actually an escaped criminal. I've stood for rustling and a lot of dirty work. Holding up the stage might mean murder. That's going too far. 
If you don't like my game, just say so. The warden at the penitentiary would just love to see you come back and finish your time. When a man wants to go straight, why won't you give him a chance? Try about that some other time. So it's up to the hero to take action, and he gets some unwitting help from the villain's jilted lover. Are you looking for bad pains? Yes. <laughs> In about one minute, he'll be scattered all over these hills. <laughs> How does everything end? It's a singing cowboy western. I think you can figure it out. Psst, hint. The guys in the white hats win. But predictable as it is, the plot is fairly tight for the genre. There aren't any gaping plot holes, which was a major problem with a lot of these westerns. But as you also probably noticed, nothing in the summary I just gave particularly hinges upon any of the characters, much less all of them, being midgets. Basically, the only time this feature of the movie comes to the fore is when the midgets interact with the set, which was obviously recycled from a previous western because everything in the town is sized for the average human. But there's only so many times you can watch one of the actors enter the saloon and have to reach up to open the swinging doors, or hop up on a little step to belly up to the bar, before it goes from cute and charming to downright just tedious. I mean, we get the joke, but is that it? It does seem as though the filmmakers may have had at least an inkling of this problem, because there are some random comical elements thrown in to try to hold the audience's interest, such as an axe-wielding German-accented cook trying to lure in a duck named Fritz, who's actually a goose. For goodness sake, can we not sit down somewhere and talk things over? Come here, Fritz. To be caught for dinner or various pratfalls made somewhat more amusing because it's a midget doing the falling. Well, you fake ox, what are you trying to do? I can't help it, boss. I schlitzed. Well, schlitz that stuff into the wagon. The only sight gag that really grabbed my attention was during a performance of the town's barbershop quartet when one of the ranchers goes in for a shave. And in the midst of the scene, the camera cuts to a rather large penguin who is in the barber shop for no apparent reason. It immediately reminded me of the Bud Ice commercials from the mid 90s. Those who remember will attest. But the penguin is never referenced again at any point in the movie. It's just randomness. Which is a shame because I would have loved it if at the end of the movie the penguin was revealed to be the true hero of the piece. It would sort of give it a kind of Tex Avery absurdist feel. Or maybe the true villain, a la Batman. In any case, the comic elements aren't enough to save this movie from turning into a snooze fest, in spite of its very short 62-minute length. Now, if the chef had been Swedish, perhaps we would have seen some real comedy. And predictably enough, the cowboy songs don't help matters. 
Especially the love theme, which is repeated several times throughout the movie. As I watched this movie, and tried my best to keep paying attention, I thought of ways that the story could have been handled better. I came up with two right up front. What kept jumping out at me was the fact that the town itself is scaled for ordinary people. Now, again, obviously this was a cost-cutting measure, and seeing as this movie was made during the Great Depression, a completely understandable one. But what if they were able to build a complete western town tailor-made for midgets, similar to what they obviously planned for the Paul Bunyan film that was never made? Taking it a step further, what if the villains of the movie were bandits or outlaws of normal size who decided to try moving in and taking over? Perhaps a hostile and prejudiced cattle baron who wants to level the town for grazing land. I'm just spitballing here. What would the defense of this hypothetical tiny town be like? I imagine there would be opportunities for all kinds of fun and games on the parts of the midgets to booby trap and outwit the bad guys, while it would be awkward for villains to maneuver through the tiny streets of the town. The locals would be right at home, and it would be something hilarious to watch as the bandits or henchmen or whoever had to flee the town with their tails between their legs as the victorious midgets jeered at them. I've watched that movie. Obviously, of course, they didn't have the budget to do that, but there's an even better story hiding in the setting of the movie we actually did get. An ordinarily scaled town populated entirely by midgets? How did this happen? What's the in-universe backstory? This situation clearly didn't happen overnight. What happened to the original founders of what came to be known as Tiny Town? Did a plague wipe them out? Did a wagon train of midgets heading west stumble upon this silent necropolis and decide to clean it up and settle there? What would prompt a group of midgets to band together and head west to begin with? Okay, picture this, and again, just spitballing. In the 19th century eastern U.S., a group of circus midgets who originally immigrated from Europe grow tired of their lot in life as circus freaks and band together to start a new life in the untamed West. Overcoming untold dangers, they eventually make a stop at a certain western town to water their horses and pack animals and resupply, but the reception they get from the townspeople is, in a word, cold. They run out of town, and then the bigoted townspeople raid their camp that night. Long story short, the original inhabitants of the city learned the hard way that it's not wise to cross a group of determined midgets. The dynamite can come in small packages, and we would see the conquest of Tiny Town. Now that's a movie I'd pay to see. Well, no! A bunch of midgets come in here and start fighting! I don't know what happened. But, alas and alack, it's not the movie we got. All the same, though, I did learn a few things by watching this movie. 
First off, Rube Goldberg would have been right at home in Tiny Town, especially at the blacksmith shop. For that matter, so would Wiley e. Coyote. Those who've seen the film will attest to this. Playing the bass fiddle is not beyond the capacity of midgets. You just need two of them, one plucking the strings and the other working the fingerboard. Never underestimate the intelligence or the wrath of a goose, especially when it's ticked off after being repeatedly called a duck. I got something nice for you. While Wild West midgets might find some drawbacks to living in a regular-sized town, the size of the beer served at the local saloon isn't one of them. Dynamite comes with a variety of fuses. Short fuse, standard fuse, delayed fuse, and then there's the fuse that burns only when the camera's pointed at it. Regardless of the height, ethnicity, etc. of the cast, a singing cowboy western is a singing cowboy western is a singing cowboy western. If your film's gimmick runs out of steam after the first 10 minutes or so, even a movie just over an hour long can feel like Berlin Alexander plots. Look it up. If your movie starts to get dull, throw in a random penguin. It may not save the movie, but at least it'll keep the audience guessing for a while. And finally, a bonus lesson courtesy of the great Patton Oswalt, which may just explain why we see no people of normal height in the movie. Be careful, because if you lose a fight to a midget, you become one. Did you know that? Let that be a lesson. Just walk away. Be the bigger man. Literally. All right. Now, if you still want to see this movie, where can you find it? Well... Fortunately, The Terror of Tiny Town is available for free on archive.org, and you can also stream it on YouTube, at least at the time of this recording. You can also find it on Amazon or eBay on DVD, either by itself for less than 10 bucks or bundled with a couple of other movies for a little bit more. It's also on Mill Creek's cult classic 20 movie pack, which runs between 10 and 20 dollars depending on where you look. But unless you're a collector or a Western completist, I'd say just watch it online for free. I really wish I could prescribe this film as a cure for what ails you, but I just didn't feel this one. I wanted to like it, but for the reasons I've already expounded upon, it just really didn't entertain me that much. The story behind the film's production is far more interesting than the film itself. It really represents a wasted opportunity. So, I'm going to say, view at your own risk. If you like the singing cowboy genre, you might like this movie just fine. But if you're looking for something bizarre, this just doesn't really deliver the goods. If you truly have a taste for the bizarre, the film that I would recommend in its place is Todd Browning's Freaks. 
and it's very likely that I'll be reviewing that film on this show at some point in the future. It's a very seminal film, a very awkward film, sometimes not comfortable for people to watch, but still a groundbreaking film in its time. The Terror of Tiny Town, however, is truly a one-trick pony. And a one-trick pony can't carry a film, even one as short as this, pun not intended. So, for the first time in this series, instead of filing this one in the archive, I'm consigning it to the target range. that's it for the September 2015 edition of Abnormal State Theater. Look for the next episode around mid-October when we approach one of the classics of silent cinema from a couple of different angles. And hopefully within the next month or two, I'll be able to squeeze in a bonus episode uh, as well as the regular ones for you folks as a reward for your patience. In the meantime, though, this is Dr. R.D. Gearhart signing off. Reminding you to watch some abnormal movies, because normal is boring. See you next time. Watch out for snakes. This has been a Clockwork Cardiac Production. <laughs>